Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 204. My name is Terry Frost and I'm starting out the January, the month of Gonzo movies with a couple of interesting Gonzo films. You couldn't do a month of Gonzo films without touching on the uh, career and life of Hunter S. Thompson. So I'm looking at the 1980 film where the Buffalo Rome starring Bill Murray. And from there, we're going to a gonzo exploitation movie from 1975, very influential, called Dolomite, starring Rudy Ray Moore, directed by Derville Martin. So sit back. I will get the contact details out of the way. You can you know, smoke some gauge if you like, and um, we'll get on with the show. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, how is everybody? Welcome to 2017, which everybody is happy hasn't killed anybody famous yet, though we are hopeful about Charles Manson. As I mentioned the last Martian Driving podcast, new format this year. Yeah, I decided I was going to get something of an unusual quality to Paleo Cinema and Martian Driving in 2017, and that quality is organisation. So January is going to be the month of Gonzo movies. So I've got Dolomite this time. I also have Where the Buffalo Roam because um, Hunter S. Thompson is the master and the creator of and the instigator of gonzo journalism so it's going to be gonzo month i'll get a couple of more crazy movies under my belt for the second podcast of this month for paleo cinema and then we move on to all of the other themes that i've got i even have a cloud word document um up so i know what i'm doing so january is going to be gonzo movies so this time around i'm doing where the buffalo Rum and dolomite next podcast i'm doing the pink angels from the 1970s and morgan a suitable case for treatment from the 1960s february we're going to do femme fatales march i'm going to do political films april i'm doing musicals and i've got a couple of guests coming on for those may it's going to be westerns June is going to be Australian classic films. July is going to be French movies. August is Eurospy, which may have a little bit of overlap with French, but I'm going to separate them out. September, World War II films. October is Kung Fu movie month. November, I'm doing actors who were born in 1917, so actors who were born 100 years ago. And December, I'm doing movies about ancient Egypt and the Arabian Nights. So that's the format for the year. Um, it's not changing. I, I may move around a few movies within that format. If something good hits my radar, I can do that. Now, of course, there aren't exactly um, two fortnights per month in a normal Earth calendar. 
So there will be episodes that I can kind of slot in for something else that comes up. So they won't be a part of the theme. They'll be outlier episodes outside the theme. I'm not sure which months they're going to come up, but I'll know when they do. And I'll add a little bit extra, but they won't be following the themes for the months. So basically there are going to be two podcasts on each theme in each of the months. So yeah, organisation. Uh, it actually helps because being the one-man band I am with this kind of thing, uh, the more I can pre-plan things, the easier it gets on the weekend when I have to record after watching the movies. Speaking of which, I've watched some movies in 2017 so far. I did pick up quite cheaply from the UK a Blu-ray of Violent Saturday, the movie starring Victor Mature, Richard Egan. Uh, it also has one of the best scenes of Ernest Borgnine stabbing Lee Marvin in the back with a pitchfork. And it's a nice, tight little thriller from the early 1950s. So I watched that and enjoyed it. And I may do it on a future podcast as well. Uh, I rewatched the 1976 X-rated version of Alice in Wonderland with Kristen DeBell in it. And it's sweet fun. Uh, it's amazing how uh, adult films have changed in the years, what is it, in the 40 years since um, 1976. But... Yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, I rewatched something from the 1990s as well, The Birdcage, which is a remake of La Cage aux Folles, the French film. This one stars, of course, Robin Williams, Nathan Lane and Gene Hackman and features Gene Hackman in drag, which is not a pretty thing. But uh, it was nice to revisit that. It was kind of interesting and um, yeah, a little bit of fun. Then Sally took me out because she's a gamer and gamer chicks are powerful. And so she took me out to see Assassin's Creed. Now, I haven't played the game. She's played about eight of them, or however many there are. She's played everything except the original Assassin's Creed. And so she's a big fan of it. Uh, of course, it stars Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. And I didn't enjoy it. Uh, but it's supposed to have been shown in 3D. So the 2D version that I saw was dark and there's lots of smoke and dust around so you can't see what's going on really. The characters didn't engage me. Uh, Fassbender, Fassbender, sorry, not Fassbender, Fassbender. Um, was no better than he had to be and uh, it's got people like Jeremy Irons and Charlotte Rampling turns up at some stage as well and Brendan Gleeson. So, you know, it's got some kind of actors with a bit of grunt to them but it didn't really grab me at all it really didn't um enjoy it i'm sure that people who are hardcore gamer fans of the assassin's creed game may well have got more out of it than i did but you know you go to the movies with your partner sometimes and see what you want some of the time see what they want some of the time and there's sometimes a place where it doesn't overlap uh then i did a movie that i picked up on eBay called Hapkido starring Angela Mao. It's a 1970s Kung Fu movie. I'm doing it for Kung Fu Month later in the year. Uh, really nice little action film about a um, Korean Hapkido um, martial arts school that opens up in China during the uh, Japanese occupation of um, Korea. And it's got some kick-ass Kung Fu action. It's got some really, really good martial artists in it. Samo Hung turns up. Um, Jackie Chan has the tiniest of cameos. I barely saw him in it. And um, it also stars Carter Wong. So it's going to be real fun to do that movie. Really nice one. And I picked it up crazily cheap on eBay. 
Um, and that's pretty much what I've watched this month. Been binging with a lot of TV. I got addicted to watching YouTube videos. Uh, top 10 ways to melt steel using a Bic lighter and all those kind of things. Yeah, so I've got a little bit hung up on that. I'm going to kind of wean myself off that so I can watch more actual films in future. But anyway, um, this podcast, this particular episode of the podcast is going to be Where the Buffalo Roam and Dolomite. Two very different films. Neither of them is going to win awards or wouldn't didn't win awards. But they're both interesting. They're both of their time and they both have something to say about the time in which they were made. So that's a lot more than you can say for Assassin's Creed. Nonetheless, um, I'm going to take a break. And when I get back... I think I will do Where the Buffalo Roam first. Hidden deep within the snow-shrouded Rockies, a fearsome creature is now awake and hungry. Ah! Oh, he's mine! Got a grip, Thompson. He is gathering his awesome powers for one final assault upon an unsuspecting world. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, meet Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the legendary outlaw journalist. What are you doing? answers. If you did. Yeah, okay. Great answers, huh? What? What? What do you want to know? Where am I? You're at your hotel, man. They broke the mold before he was born. Bill Murray is the outrageous, the infamous, the totally glorious Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I I hate to advocate drugs or liquor, violence, insanity to anyone. But in my case, it's worked. Be proud, man. You're becoming a famous writer. The famous Dr. Gonzo. Here is where the buffalo roam. Buffalo, took you so long. Jeez, what a nightmare here. Is your attorney, I advise you to leave this room at once. You find him. You see me. He owes me a cover story and I want to get it. Homeboy to T1. Homeboy to T1. Dead. Ghost Riders, Atticus Prophets. Fire, blood, revolution. Was he a gun collector? You gotta write a story. I need your help. They got a struggle. You should be part of it. He left on Tuesday. Today's Saturday. That's weird. The same mix-up happened to me this morning. I thought it was Tuesday. Saturday. Everybody else is here. Abiga, Buckja, Pet. Deeper, deeper, deeper. You better get down the hallway over there and throw a muzzle over that fruitcake. Grimble! If you have a taste for total destruction, behold the invincible Gonzo Warrior. Thompson! Thompson! As he takes on truth. Forecast is for bad craziness. Justice. You're off this campaign for good right now. Give me your credentials. Give them to me, Thompson, right now. And the American way. Right about it! In the land where the buffalo roam. You psychotic? You've done it to me again. Look, it's for your own good. You don't belong here. 
Okay, so Where the Buffalo Roam is a 1980 film directed by Art Linden, a guy who only has about two or three directorial credits in IMDb, but was a producer on, and he's actually a producer and a producer on Sons of Anarchy, so he's gone on to a career in um, the arts without actually being a director. And he actually trained, he went to school to learn how to direct this film, amongst other things. Of course, it's based on the life of the famous gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, a guy whose writing I love, even when he was incoherent and um, unreliable in his later years. There was always a crazy poetry to what he wrote and a passion for justice as well uh you can't get away with the self-indulgent shit that thompson did journalistically unless you have a reason for doing it and an angle and thompson always had that he, he always had a clear understanding that the people in power can only be really attacked through satire now, the, yeah, you can t- get them through the electoral votes, but the bastards behind them stay there. But Thompson understood that the best way to undermine um, people like Nixon and um, other people, uh, Mayor Daley in 1968 in Chicago at the Democratic um, Convention, all of those kind of people, Reagan later on, uh, amongst others, and Bush, he did attack Bush as well before his um, untimely death in 2005. But yeah, I read Thompson stuff way back. I, first thing I read was Hell's Angels, and uh, that's kind of at the just as he's starting to personalise the journalism and get that um, craziness in there. So I read Hell's Angels in paperback. I think I still got the paperback. In fact, I know I have. Uh, and then I went on to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, of course. Well before I ever touched a drug, I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And it works for any anybody who's kind of an, um, an outsider can really appreciate that and, and appreciate the craziness of the mainstream. And if you look at the world, the mainstream world, and you know the conservative world, the world of um, people who have some form of privilege from the outside, and you do it also while you're totally off your fucking face you can get a perspective on it. And Thompson brought that. And one of the things he did, which gets him a lot of credit with me, is he always punched upwards. He never attacked small people. He never attacked the um, uneducated and the, and the stupid. He, he His normal uh, approach was to attack the powerful, even though he did mention there were inbred fools and things like that who supported those people. His, the thrust of his argument was always to punch upwards, and that gets a lot of credit with me. So, of course, we've got the um, 1998 film with Johnny Depp, based on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, directed by Terry Gilliam. Uh, I don't like Johnny Depp that much, but I like the movie. And Thompson having a cameo in it was uh, a nice little uh, addition to that film. But uh, the, if you want a kind of pure Hunter S. Thompson experience without the um, drug-induced craziness, then this is a pretty good movie to go to. I remember it did the Art House Circuit here in Australia uh, repeatedly in the 1980s, uh, along with a lot of other films like Mr. Mike's Mondo Video was another one that was getting a lot of play and um, Liquid Sky and all those kind of films. It was, uh, for us, part of that part of things. But I like it. Uh, I don't think it's a perfect film. I think it's very episodic. I think that uh, Bill Murray is a much better actor now than he was at the time he made 
where the buffalo roam. But he does kind of give us a reasonable Thompson. Uh, he was still working on Saturday Night Live at the time, in fact. I think it may have been his last season of Saturday Night Live. It was just after he made Where the Buffalo Roam. And he was doing gonzo things on the set of Saturday Night Live after making this film and pissing off everybody concerned. Uh, he then went to live in Paris for five years, which is something I envy of him. But, um, yeah, I do like Bill Murray's take on Thompson. You need some, an actor like Bill Murray who's... Um, He's physically right for it, apart from the fact he wasn't quite as bald as Thompson was. But he also is an intelligent man, and I think that that's very much a part of it. I think that Johnny Depp's Thompson doesn't get the intelligence and the humour of the man quite right. I think he, he does a good kind of imitation, but he doesn't get that... Um, if you have a look at any interviews with Thompson, for instance, and I watched a part of a Letterman interview, he smiles a lot. He's um, when he's being interviewed and things like that. He's, he's not a, a grim person, and um, I don't think that either Bill Murray or Johnny Depp's interpretation of Hunter S. Thompson really gets that kind of wry, puckish humour where he's taking the piss out of people. Uh, it's a hard one to do because Thompson is a complicated guy. He was. Um, yeah, it's clinically insane, basically, but brilliant. Uh, he withdrew from the world. Um, he His alcohol and drug use eventually took a toll on him physically, and the argument is mentally. Uh, like if you have a look through a few of the biographies of Thompson, the one I like is Hunter by um, E. Jean Carroll, because she actually kind of stayed at Woody Creek, at his place at Woody Creek, and... Um, did at least an attempt at a female version of gonzo journalism which kind of worked and it's um it gives us a female perspective on thompson which i found quite interesting yes he was sexist um there were allegations of sexual assault which is um unfortunate the truth of them is kind of muddied by the um, adversarial legal processes that are involved in these kind of cases and while I'm not going to kind of dismiss anybody who claims sexual assault at all, the truth about anything to do with Thompson's life is difficult to ascertain, let alone the truth of something where there were no other witnesses apart from the two people involved. I, I suspect and quite strongly that he was way too touchy-feely, and it's, it's very disappointing that he was, and I'm not going to try to dismiss at all the obvious distress caused to that person. But nonetheless, um, I like Thompson's writing. I like what Thompson said about a lot of things. Towards the end of his life, yeah, he, he there was no nothing. There was no one at the wheel, and he was sitting in the back seat with a cigar in his mouth and a drink. And unfortunately, he committed suicide in two thousand and five as his health deteriorated, and his um, considerable talents were diminished by his lifestyle. And, and yeah, no, that's an unfortunate thing, but this is kind of in, in the where the buffalo roams, which has got a really good soundtrack too by Neil Young. Um, this movie really shows us peak Thompson in a sense. Yeah, he's horny and alcoholic and um, drug addled, but the world he moves through, in a sense, justifies that. Uh, we see him at the start 
at home at Woody Creek with his guns and the Doberman Pincher, which attacks a dummy he's made up to look like Richard M. Nixon every time he says Nixon, which is kind of funny. And, um, you know, for whole generations of Americans, Nixon was the political boogeyman. He was the asshole who um, did the Watergate scandal. He was the one who continued Vietnam. He was an evil and malicious and cunning prick by all accounts of even his closest friends. And he was the major kind of political presidential demon in America before recent events overtook that. And I suspect that there's going to be a lot of the same kind of vilification on the soon-to-be US president that there was on Richard Nixon. And because of social media and because of the ubiquity of the internet, I think it's going to be a lot harder and harsher than the attacks on Nixon ever were. But to get back to the movie after that little rant, um, the supporting cast is very good. Peter Boyle plays a character called Carl Laszlo, who's actually based on a friend of Thompson's, who appeared in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as the 300-pound Samoan attorney Dr. Gonzo. Um, Now, the guy's actual name was Oscar Zeta Acosta. Acosta was a civil rights lawyer who was very big in the Chicano movement, in uh, particularly in California in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and he and Thompson were great friends. Uh, Acosta, unfortunately, had a great fondness for uh, binge drinking and for uh, LSD and became involved in some very, very shady dealings, which are kind of lightly and humorously touched on in Where the Buffalo Roam. And in 1974, Acosta disappeared during a trip to Mazatlan in Mexico and was never seen again and has to this day not been seen. Thompson himself has addressed the disappearance of Acosta because a lot of people said he was alive and living in um, Miami and Thompson wrote an article uh, poo-pooing that idea and saying that what's probably happened is he was either killed or died of uh, a heart attack or something like that as a part of being on a boat full of people which was also full of cocaine. So uh, Costa died, but he was a much larger-than-life character. He ran for Sheriff of Los Angeles County in 1970, got more than 100,000 votes. He wrote two novels as well, Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo and Revolt of the Cockroach People. So he was a, a man of letters as well. But um, he, I was, no, his addiction was an addiction to amphetamines and LSD. Sorry, I'm just reading through Wikipedia on Acosta. But um, he was immortalized in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Vinicio del Toro played the character in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, of course. But for Where the Buffalo Roam, the idea of having Peter Boyle, a white Anglo person, playing a character based on Acosta wasn't considered right and, and rightly so too they were kind of white you know brown facing a, a white actor so they changed the name to Carl Laszlo and made him a civil rights lawyer with a fringe of fuzzy hair and an enormous Fu Manchu moustache and Peter Boyle does a good job of it too his um, Laszlo is um, a kind of more out whereas um, Thompson was more inward and, and kind of paranoid and running under the radar kind of thing. Laszlo's um, 
insanity and eccentricity was more outwards. He was. We see him first in 1968 because this is a very episodic movie about the various encounters that Thompson and Laszlo had in in the format of the movie. Uh, you see him as a civil rights lawyer defending kids who were getting busted for. Um, minor drug use and given outrageous charges by California at the time, which is what happened. The um, charges that people were brought up on for, you know, smoking a couple of joints or having a joint were uh, outrageous. You know, you get five years. That's one of the characters, the guy called Billy in the movie, got five years for uh, having a few joints. That's the kind of thing that was happening. And that's the reason why civil rights lawyers kind of emerged as a powerful political and uh, legal force in America at the time. These days, uh, the um, future perils, they will emerge again, and, and they have continued since that time, defending people's rights, defending Roe versus Wade, defending all sorts of other rights, legalizing marijuana in various states and things like that, and that's going to be an interesting fight over the next four years. But um, Peter Boyle is really good in it. He has a lot of fun playing the role he's over the top um very much different from the kind of character he played in movies like joe in the 1970s and for that matter young frankenstein but he's good in this one uh bruno kirby turns up playing the equivalent of jan wenner the um editor of rolling stone so he plays a guy that uh thompson's writing articles for his magazine and getting frustrated by Thompson missing deadlines and not giving him exactly what he asked for. But uh, there's not too much of Bruno Kirby in there, which is a shame because he's a good actor. He was a good actor, unfortunately. He died a decade and a half ago. But um, so we got Bruno Kirby in there. Not too many female characters are strong in this one, which is uh, a bit of a shame. But you do get um, a character actor that Star Trek fans adore. And that, of course, and he had a great career from the 1970s onwards. And that's um, Rene Besomois, uh, who turns up as a very straight-laced journalist until he encounters Thompson and takes a couple of pills from him, thinking they're aspirin. Turns out they're not, but uh, he goes really well from straight-laced and, and very intelligent journalist and um, Bill Murray's Thompson is impressed with his journalistic credentials and and um, his accuracy as a journalist. But when they're on the aeroplane during um, Nixon's re-election tour, things get a little out of hand. And that, that's part of the fun too. I mean, it's not all serious and political and um, social justice kind of stuff. There's, there's some really good crazy bits in this movie. The stuff in the aeroplane is very much over the top and um, outrageous. There's um, a couple of other scenes involving one of Thompson's best arenas, hotel rooms, where his hotel room for the Super Bowl, it turns into um, a party-come-orgy-come amusement park over the period of the weekend when the Super Bowl's on. Thompson gives his Super Bowl tickets to a couple of black dudes who are hanging around the outside of the hotel, and including the press passes, so they end up on television waving at their mothers behind all of the people doing the commentary for the Super Bowl. And, yeah, there, there are all these kind of little bits of anarchy and fun that really um, make the movie yeah, lift it from what it would have been otherwise. Ralph Stedman, the guy who did... Um, a lot of the artwork for Thompson's work does the titles and the um, interstitial titles for Where the Buffalo Roams as well, which gives it a kind of continuity with Thompson's work, which is appreciated. 
But overall, it's a kind of bold but failed attempt at covering Hunter S. Thompson. One of the big problems with Thompson is if somebody did a straight biopic of um, Thompson, it really wouldn't play the um, the truth and the fiction merge so much in so much of what Thompson does and the legend overshadows the person to a crazy extent I really don't think it um you could do it it's one of those things where you may well try to do an HBO miniseries but you have to find an actor with the grunt to do this kind of role and it's a difficult one too because um ultimately it's a tragic tale of, of somebody whose brilliance um is at battle with his excess and who ultimately bows out himself because he can only see, you know, a downward spiral in his future. Now, I'm not an um, advocate for suicide for a, a number of reasons. I always think fight, keep fighting because it's the only game in town. The odds are always in favour of the person who sticks around. But I know that's not a view that all people hold. But that's my view, and I'm comfortable with that. And um, I believe in voluntary euthanasia. If people choose to end their life, they've got the right to. But for me, yeah, you live forever or die trying is my motto. But um, anyway, the, where the Buffalo Roam, you should be able to find a copy of it around. I've had a copy for five bucks locally here in Australia, but I'm sure you can find it as well uh, from various sources. Uh, I'd go to eBay as the first source if you're trying to look for it. You can go torrents as well, of course, but that's entirely up to you. Speaking of which, I'm going to diverge a little bit here. Australia tried to ban the Pirate Bay. They said that all ISPs have to block the Pirate Bay so that people can't download torrents, even though it is a source for legitimate torrents as well as illicit ones. And so the Australian government's got the ISPs to block Pirate Bay. It took me literally, and with no exaggeration at all, 15 seconds to find a proxy server where I could go and take a look at Pirate Bay if I wanted to. So, um, you know, it's um, it's an interesting battle. I don't think that uh, anytime soon people illegally downloading product is going to stop or even particularly slow down. The best thing that the um, industry can do is make things accessible and make them accessible at a reasonable price point. If they choose to do that, the need for torrents will diminish. I don't think they're ever going to particularly go away, but you can, um, you know, one of the things is the torrent downloads have decreased in Australia because of things like Netflix and Stan, because a lot of the stuff they want to watch, they can watch without illegally downloading it for like 10 bucks a month. So at that price point, it really does work in favour of both the content producers and as I said about Netflix previously there are a lot of small films that are getting a platform on Netflix that are really interesting they're not perfect films but they're really interesting pieces of work documentaries get a good um, platform on Stan and Netflix here in Australia and uh, yeah that, that's definitely the way to go hard um, draconian government attempts to block um, torrent sites for a start won't work it costs the ISPs money, it costs the government money, it costs everybody money because of that, and it's ineffective. But anyway, I'm going to take a break again, and when I get back, we're going to go back to pre-internet days for the story of a pimp fighting another pimp with the 1975 black exploitation kind of comedy, Dolomite, starring Rudy Ray Moore 
um, Jerry Jones and Derville Martin. Oh, Dolomite. You yes, do, Warden. You do know a man by the name of Willie Green, don't you? Some folks say that Willie Green was the baddest motherfucker the world ever seen. But I want you to hold on to your seat. Hold on to them tight. Because you now get ready to see the story of me. Yes, me. The badass. Don't look back. Okay, so Dolomite's a 1975 American exploitation comedy starring Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite. It also stars Jerry Jones as Blakely the Cop, uh, Lady Reed as Queen Bee, who runs um, Dolomite's whorehouse for him, uh, Wes Gale starring as Reverend Gibbs, and the guy called Venus Rackstraw playing the hamburger pimp. I'm going to give you the um, praise from IMDb. Dolomite is a pimp who was set up by Willie Green and the cops who planted drugs, stolen furs and guns in the trunk of his car and got him sentenced to 20 years in jail. One day Queen Bee, uh, the lady who runs his house, and a warden planned to get him out of jail and get Willie Green and Mitchell busted for what they did to him. However, Dolomite is not a stupid man, has a lot of warriors backing him, such as his core girls who have become karate experts and a lot more. That's kind of one of the um, praises that you get from IMDb. It's got everything. It's got guns, uh, pimps, prostitutes, and karate. This movie cost an estimated $100,000 to make and ended up making $12 million at the box office, which is a nice return on investment for anybody, really. Uh, the production values are kind of low. Uh, you do see boom marks in various scenes. Uh, the continuity is shot to shit at times. Some of the acting is incredibly bad. Some of it's okay. And even Rudy Ray Moore is not particularly a gifted actor. Now, we probably should talk about Rudy Ray Moore. Interesting character, not a particularly great actor, but um, he turned Dolomite and, and the sequels into a, a nice cash cow for himself. He started out um, as a comedian, musician, singer, film actor and film producer, it says on his Wikipedia page. Born in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1927. Uh, he started out doing comedy albums in the late 1950s after he'd been in the army and done a number of other things. With a, um, 
an album called Below the Belt and then one called Beatnik Scene. Let's come together, eat out more often. This pussy belongs to me. <laughs> and um, a whole bunch of others. It's very much in the um, style of Red Fox in that he um, swore a lot in the comedy records. Uh, he was influenced by Red Fox and by Richard Pryor. But he's widely known as being what they call the godfather of rap because he used um, a black phenomenon, a black cultural phenomenon called the dozens, where people kind of do poetic insults at each other. Yeah, but the Yo Mama sort of stuff is part of the dozens. I really recommend that you go to Wikipedia and type in the dozens just to get a bit of background on it if you don't um, get what I'm saying. In fact, Rudy Ray Moore did an album called The Dirty Dozens. Now, the story how Dolomite came about, according to Rudy Ray Moore, is that he was um, a local man named Rico began telling him obscene stories about a character called Dolomite. And so Rudy Ray Moore kind of adopted these stories and adapted them and uh, started uh, making a part of his nightclub cabaret act and a part of the recordings that he did. So uh, in nineteen in the early 1970s, he and uh, Jerry Jones, who had a career as an actor before this, he, a character actor, he was also a teacher of acting. And in fact, um, all the way until his death in the early 2000s, he was very much part of the black theatre scene in Los Angeles. He nurtured black talent and black actors and is well regarded for that. He um, he wrote plays as well and had plays produced. So he was at the lower end of the scale of um, the artistic uh, endeavours. But you know, he kept at it and kept doing what he, what he liked doing all the way until his death in about 2006. Rudy Ray Moore, by the way, died in 2008 at the ripe old age of 81. But Rudy Ray Moore and Jerry Jones got together and roughed out a script for Dolomite. And they couldn't find anybody to play the character. They wanted somebody over the top. It wasn't actually going to be about Dolomite. It was going to be about a guy who gets set up by the cops and by um, a rival pimp, well, a rival criminal, and sent to jail and then given a chance to redeem himself and find out who the real criminals are. So they couldn't find anybody to play that role. So eventually they decided to roll the nightclub character of Dolomite into the script and that's where everything came together and Rudy Ray is a kind of unlikely black exploitation hero he was 48 when the movie came out um he was kind of uh slightly overweight big bone guy and a, you know, quite a muscular guy as well uh he had a boxer's face with a few cuts above one eyebrow uh, and a, a scar on the other for- side of the forehead and um he had no real acting chops and he really does kind of blossom when he's doing his nightclub act. There are a couple of times where he does it. He does one about the Titanic just for a bunch of guys hanging around a car park. He also does uh, one of his famous bits, the signifying monkey at the nightclub that um, Dolomite owned. And the name of the nightclub is very, very cool as well. Uh, Dolomite's nightclub is called The Total Experience, which has got to be one of the best 1970s nightclub names. And you do see a couple of support acts for um, Rudy Ray Moore's show as a part of the movie, fleshing things out a little bit and just giving you a kind of snapshot in a way of popular live um, cabaret culture in the black community in the early 1970s. And this is one of the reasons why Dolomite's such an interesting movie. It's not because of the... um, 
nudity and the violence and um, the over-the-top rhyming of Rudy Ray Moore. It shows you, um, it's a movie made for black people by black people. Uh, Duval Martin, the director who also stars in the movie, had a career as a jobbing actor. In fact, he's um, he was mentioned in Harlan Ellison's The Glass Teat as an up-and-coming black actor. Unfortunately, he died in 1984 at the age of 45 of a heart attack. But he did have a, a long career in movies. Uh, he was in a movie called Black Like Me with James Whitmore, where a white guy black faces and pretends to be a black man. He was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He also appeared in Rosemary's Baby. Um... He was in, and he did some black black exploitation things as well. He was in Hammer. He was in Black Caesar. He was in The Legend of Nigger Charlie. But he's one of those actors who never reached his full potential, which is really a shame. I just saw that he was the bus driver in Watermelon Man, which I've talked about previously on the podcast. So, yeah, he had a number of... um, kind of opportunities there and a number of roles but it just didn't work I don't think directing was his skill I don't think he was particularly trained in it because the with the way the uh, certain scenes are framed and the boom marks showing in a, a couple of scenes and things like that are a kind of beginner's mistake but the movie does have a certain impetus and, and moves along and of course there was the sequel The Human Tornado then Rudy Moore did things like Disco Godfather. There's even a movie called Shaolin Dolomite, which I'm trying to find a copy of. It was made in the 1990s and has Rudy Ray Moore in it. He did a movie playing Dolomite for Insane Clown Posse in the um, 1990s or the early 2000s, which is kind of um, kooky. And uh, let, let me see if I can find that one. It's called, if you want to suss it out, I'm not particularly interested in um, Insane Clown Posse. But this movie was called Big Money Hustlers. H-U-S-T-L-A-S. And it was made in 2000. And he played Dolomite in that. In 2002, he did a director video thing called The Return of Dolomite, which was his last um, go at the role before his death in 2008. But he was he was one of those guys who was influential on a number of people. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, for instance, is a big fan of Rudy Ray Moore stuff. And his comedy album stuff is um, very, very funny as well. But to get back to a point I was making earlier, I love movies that are filmed on location at any time. I always find location much more interesting than studio and set films because you see... In a sense, the background is a documentary. It's the way um, the world was at a certain place at a certain time. And for me, that's always an interesting thing. And it's one of the extra benefits I get from exploitation movies and also exploitation movies and British crime dramas of a certain era or British TV shows or American TV shows of a certain time. Just seeing those details of you know, how much a you get, if there's a scene in the butcher shop, I want to know how much um, a, you know, a pound of beef costs and things like that, and what kind of foods people were eating, and all of those kind of little details which go unnoticed at the time the film is made and produced and released because they're part of the way the world is. People don't look at that stuff, but with the hindsight of history. We look at it differently and we see how things were. We see in this one what a um, Ralph's supermarket car park looked like in 1975. We see what the inside of a nightclub was like in the black community in the 1970s. 
and the kind of acts that were playing in it as well. There's um, there's a little bit of a feel uh, in Dolomite because the nightclub scenes where they're showing the nightclub acts are filmed from the back of the auditorium high up on one side and they don't have any other coverage of that. So the, those scenes in the nightclub reminded me a lot of the way the nightclub scenes were filmed in Luke, the Luke Cage TV series on Netflix. They had a similarity to them where they got in good acts and uh, just kind of went with them on a fairly small stage because these kind of clubs never had an enormous stage. And just to kind of see the the costumes, the way people dressed, the way people wore their hair, uh, the outrageous suits that people wear, particularly the Dolomite, um, whose suit half the time looks like a test pattern and the other half of the time looks like somebody needs to wiggle the bunny ears to make the um, picture come back to the screen. It's <laughs> that kind of stuff. But even with the amateurishness of the movie in a lot of ways, there are some scenes that work really well. There's a scene where um, Dolomite and his girls are in the car and are being followed by um, some bad guys after Dolomite gets out of jail. And they stop on a deserted road and uh, they, they get stopped on a deserted road and the bad guys walk up to the car and ask the girls where Dolomite is and they say, he's not here. And then Dolomite shows up with a machine gun, guns down some of them and um, wounds another guy after getting some information out of him. And then one of his girls finishes the guy off by cutting his dick off with a um, straight razor. And there's a couple of straight razor attack scenes in this movie as well, which kind of are a bit... It's a little bit off-screen. It's below the screen level that you see the dick getting cut off, but you hear the um, rasp of the guy's zipper and then the slash of the razor, which is a little bit cringy. But um, it, it shows a couple of things, one of which is straight razors are or at least were a weapon that working girls needed to ply their trade at a certain time. And this movie, like a lot of um, other black exploitation movies, isn't particularly censorious of sex workers. It doesn't make a judgment about them. Uh, I don't think the movie's complicated enough to have that kind of nuance. But um, Dolomite is a pimp, essentially, and a nightclub owner. And nonetheless, in spite of that, he really... Um, treats the women well and they all adore him for that and sleep with him in great numbers because black exploitation movie 1975 what else is going to happen and yeah it's just a lot of fun to watch i'm going to re-watch the human tornado which has got a little bit higher production values in it and ernie hudson turns up in that one as well which is kind of cool but you can um, find the whole lot of them on eBay fairly easily. Dolomite, you can get um, The Human Tornado. You can get um, Disco Godfather, which talks about crack and the crack epidemic, which nobody was talking about in 1980 when the movie came out. Um, nobody outside the black communities, of course, because it didn't hit white communities until later. And then it became a problem that hit the radar of a lot of media and also a lot of law enforcement. But, um, yeah, this one's a, a good movie in the sense that it delivers on what it promises. It doesn't promise to be slick. It doesn't promise to be smooth. It promises to be um, funny. It promises to have music in it. It promises to have pretty girls with their clothes off and a lot of crime. 
There's a, probably a lot of nuance I missed because I'm not a, a black man living in Los Angeles in 1975. But the stuff that I did pick up on I found interesting. It also has that trope where the only um, white people you see in it are corrupt cops, corrupt politicians, or beautiful girls in the audience in a black nightclub in 1975. And that's probably the way it should be for these sort of movies. For so long and in so many ways, black audiences didn't see black faces in cinema. And for that, we can put up a few movies like this where white faces are either um, nasty or a rarity. It's It's a fair cop to have that little bit of balance there and to give us a a necessary little reminder that we do see a lot of white faces in cinema and that there's virtue in diversity and we we need to have that we need to have wonderful actors and there are any number of wonderful actors of color or of different ethnicities who really um do fill out and, and make richer the world of any movie that you see diversity always enriches cinema uh, you get different viewpoints, you get people bringing their life experiences to their acting, their directing, their writing, anything they do, and we end up with a much kind of more nuanced and complicated and complex and lived-in world in any movie that um, has that kind of approach to things. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to put a bit of diversity into the themes for this year's um, Paleo Cinema. I wanted to have the Eurospy ones. I wanted to have some French movies that I hadn't seen and pop those in there. I wanted the Kung Fu movies in there as well. And uh, I think next year I might do a season of black exploitation movies that I haven't talked about yet on the podcast. And that's going to be a little hard to find because I have talked about a hell of a lot of them. But, um, yeah, it's something I really want to hit with the podcast and and have that kind of different genres, different approaches to things. Uh, I'm going to get in a few different voices on the podcast as well. In April, as I said, I've got to get in two guests to talk about musicals, and neither of those are men. And I I really enjoyed it. I'm actually getting Alyssa back, and I had Alyssa talk uh, previously on this podcast. I'm getting her back, and I'm also getting a a mutual friend called Tansy to talk about musicals because they like musicals, and and they offer to do it, and I'm I'm more than happy to do that. So one of the musicals I'm going to do is Cabaret, just to give you a little bit of a hint on that. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But um, anyway, that's about it. This is going to be a slightly shorter podcast. But, you know, I'm sorry that it's shorter. I don't particularly plan it that way. But with um, movies like these, you can say what you can say about them and all the rest of it. If you start fleshing it out, it starts to get a little bit dull. But anyway, um, look after yourselves. Watch good movies, watch bad movies, watch all movies. I'll be back next week with Martian Drive-In Podcast and back in two weeks with another podcast of paleo cinema where i'm going to talk about um the pink angels and morgan the suitable case for treatment see i can actually tell you the next podcast now because i've got things organized so look after yourselves look after each other and enjoy good movies enjoy bad movies just enjoy movies and as usual i'm going to leave you with the credits for the podcast to thank the people who support the podcast financially through Patreon. The two Kerrys aren't on there yet, but I always mention them up front until I get my act together and redo the Patreon credits. Look after yourselves, people, and I'll be back very soon. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. 
We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.
about. Now. 